0: News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi.
1: Have you ever heard the term schadenfreude? It's where we take pleasure from someone else's misfortune. I mean, why do we do that? We also love inspirational stories, sure, but there's no denying that when there's a story of something terrible happening to someone we're also kind of fascinated by that too aren't we and while we like to judge people for being fascinated by these stories we really shouldn't and why is that Well, our next guest is going to explain it's Dr. Dean Burnett neuroscientist and the author of emotional ignorance Dr. Burnett thanks for being with us
2: thank you thank you for having me
1: so you're telling us this is a natural thing we've all we kind of humans have always been like this
2: yeah, absolutely. Uh, and, well, uh, since we've been humans, really, you know, for two or three million years ago, depends on uh, who you ask. But, um, yeah, we're a very, very social species. We are ultra-social, um, perhaps the most social species on Earth, despite what you may think when you look at the news or check any website any time ever. We are actually surprisingly <laughs> um, friendly to each other. I think, I think, yes, people are mean to each other often, but think about how many humans there are. I mean, we sort of hurt each other, vanishingly rarely, whereas most species would, um, would be less tolerant of each other. But... That comes with, um, you know, it's been, it's been the source of our success, but it comes with some costs, too. We're not just social. We are, you know, we have a hierarchy of our social status, and where you are in your perceived hierarchy, you know, who looks up to you, who looks down at you, is a big part of your well-being for for a species like ours. Our brain's very sensitive to that. So usually someone's, like, a, you know, got something we want or we feel like they don't deserve, and then they lose it, uh, then that's actually very reassuring for us. Like, it's um it's a rewarding experience to see that person was technically above me, and now they're not. And I didn't do anything, and it's not my fault, and I am going to do anything. I'm just going to enjoy this. And nothing the brain likes is things which benefit us, which require little to no effort. So when <laughs> someone else comes across <laughs> it, it's quite So we're not uh, being petty. Pleasing.
1: So we're not being petty. Because that's what we always say, right? Oh, I'm trying not to be petty about it. But we still feel mm. guilty for feeling uh, this way.
2: Well, exactly. These emotions are there. You, know, you can't, um, can't really stop them. Like The emotions uh, part of your brain is very, very. Um, Uh, it's it's very old compared to our ability to think rationally and logically and be objective and noble and stuff, but... um it's usually a lot faster too, because it's such an older system. It's like far more instinctive. We have the emotional reaction first, and then we think about it. Uh, so you can't really stop yourself from having the reaction, the response. It's how you, um, you know, how how you respond to it you know, logically, or how, how you choose to go about it. If you sort of start cackling and rubbing your fingers in glee, and that's that's kind of petty. I <laughs> suppose you don't have to do that, but um, it's okay to feel the satisfaction because you know you, you can't really about that really.
1: Okay, and so you're saying this is just a natural thing because we have this we have this idea that oh okay if somebody is higher than us and they suffer a bit of a loss that makes us feel better about where we are.
2: Yeah, I mean, there's, there's a certain caveat to that. Of course, it's, um, you know, it has to be proportional. So, say if you've got a neighbour who's in slightly nicer house than yours that you'd like, and like, oh maybe they, they, their dog uh, fouls on your lawn once or twice, and you're like, hey, come on, uh, no, that's annoying. But if then you see them get hit by a car, that's not Schadenfreude. That's Oh my god, that's that's, <laughs> that's terrible. That is yeah, terrible. There's a, a sense of proportion that's needed, of course. Right. But if someone is, you know, um saying like a, somebody, you know, at work who's like got an executive position because you know they lied or cheated their way up there and then they get found out and you know it all comes crashing down for them. That seems like justice. There's another thing we do as well. because like, um Karma.
1: Like we would also call karma. this karma.
2: Pretty much karma, yeah. Um, I think that comes from another instinctive thing our brains do called the the just world hypothesis. It's like the most people have this subconscious belief that the world is a fair place. Like, you know, if you do good things, good things will happen to you. You work hard, you will get your reward. Um, It's probably, you know, some people I say, well, the world doesn't work like that. But we need to believe it does because that's otherwise no one will get out of bed in the morning. You know, if anything's random, why bother? So it's a preservation thing.
1: Are these two things similar then, right? Like we, it is all because we have this innate sense that things should be
2: fair. Yes, absolutely. And that's why it's like it has to be proportional because obviously if someone, inconvenience you slightly and then get in a car crash, that's not fair. That's that's totally out, out, out of uh, out of left field. But if someone you, you recognize has obtained things uh, unfairly, um, humans, humans, the human brain really likes fairness and justice. And um, yeah, that's another thing that Schadenfreude feeds into. Like, yes, justice has happened also for minimal effort, also in a way that benefits me, um, because now I'm not as another you know, person is not as above me as they were. And um, yeah, so all these things are, you know, they tick a lot of boxes for the subconscious brain.
1: Right. You talked about something called the just world bias. What is that?
2: Yeah, that's this um uh, this sort of like an underlying belief that most people not everyone but most people have that the world is a fair place. Like if I work hard and uh, then I will I will benefit from this because the world is fair. Um, when you see someone violating that, or if you see anything violating that, it sort of sets up a sense of unease. So, you know, if, um, that's, why it's, that's where things like victim blaming come from, Is in, well, no, that bad thing happened to this person. Now, either no, the world is an unfair place or, no, they must have done something to deserve it. And that's where these sort of um, you know, knee-jerk assumptions huh. come from.
1: I guess but, what, uh, what yeah. fascinates me about that then, Dr. Burnett, is that humans seem to have this instinctive feeling of, of, a, of the, how society should be built right? Before, before we even built society, it's in our DNA about what we feel like society mm. should be.
2: Yeah, yeah, we wanted to be a fair place, but then uh, that comes tricky, especially with massive societies like ours. Like when you're just like 20 or 30 individuals in a tribe, it's a lot easier to keep control of things. So like you know, So we know who goes where, who does what, who's done this, that and the other. So you know that's the sort of environment we've evolved to be part of. But now we've got like millions of people living together and very really complex infrastructures and things like that. And People have different ideas of what is or isn't fair, you know, left wing, right wing, like libertarian, liberal, socialist. These are all different ideas of what counts as fair, what doesn't. And that's when things can go mm. awry because you see someone, you know, on a different uh, political position to you succeeding, that strikes you as unfair. Whereas they think it's totally fair because they're doing what they think right. our society should work. And um, cause, ah. because nobody agrees, and then it becomes tricky, yes.
1: So fairness is also subjective.
2: Yes, you no. Know, our whole understanding of the world is based on, uh, our, you know, what knowledge we have, our individual experiences and our memories and stuff. And obviously, those are going to be hugely shaped and provided by the life we ex- we live, the experiences we have, and the people we talk to. So, yeah, it's very much a you know we've cobbled all this, this experience together into a view of how the world should work. But what uh, you're but telling me, yeah. but
1: what you're telling me is that I don't necessarily have to feel guilty if I, you know, don't feel terrible for somebody who has something bad happen to them.
2: Um, no, you don't. Well it, it depends, is this person a bad person? Do they deserve it? Or is it, uh, you know, is, it is it proportional? If you you're laughing at someone getting you know, the house got destroyed because well, I, you know, I wouldn't do it, that. That's yeah, that's harsh, yes. Because they have a nicer car than you, then they yeah, that's, that's probably a little <laughs> yeah. bit much. But um yeah, no, it, it, it's, it's a human reaction. It is something and there are cases where it is sort of, you know, it is just, it is fair that someone did something very bad and something bad has happened to them. That is like, you know, it's almost like a guilt free pleasure because the uh, the right thing has happened, and in, in, in an objective sense, really, not to any degree. But you know, there we go.
1: How long have we had that word "Schadenfreude"? Like, how long have that has that word been around?
2: Uh, well, pff, well, it's older than me. I'll say that much. <laughs> but um, I think I'll have to ask the Germans about that because they're the ones who came but up. with But that's that's uh, how
1: long yeah. it's been studied, right? Like that we have observed this for.
2: Yeah, I think I think that the phenomenon probably predates um, the word. Um, it's one of those things like now, now we have a word for it, Everyone goes, "Oh yes, that's what, that's what that is." But it's been around longer than the word itself. Um, it probably does go back to you know, tribal times so when we were aware of who was where. Like you know, if you're thinking primitive humans uh, on the savanna, like you know. Og's got a bigger spear than me and he doesn't deserve it I, I made that but he took it and then he trips and Stabs himself with it, ah see That's what happens
1: That's <laughs> so true, that is so true This makes so much more sense and hopefully we can all feel A little bit better, we're allowed to be a little bit petty It sounds like, uh, Dr. Oh, Burnett th- Thanks for your time
2: No problem at all
0: This is Mornings with Simi have a little
1: chat this morning with our contributor Scott Schatz we're talking a little entertainment news good morning Scott hi
3: how are you I'm good thank you I'm looking forward to my shows getting back to work and uh, seeing some new stuff yes absolutely there's going to be a bit of a lull obviously as they think as things sort of get back to it uh, but yeah there's hopefully like the projects that we all wanted the TV shows and the movies you know yeah exactly but they can't get going yet because the actors are still on strike yes but at least they can start that process and you know if the Actors strike there, you know, if that got sorted, that gives me hope that the rest of the thing can get sorted. But you can tell all of the entertainment sort of uh, publications are looking for stories, right? And they're coming up with stories because it's like, oh, there's nothing to report from the set of whatever TV show or anything, you know? So Rolling Stone put out this interesting article called The, the Biggest 50 Mistakes in, in Hollywood History. Yeah. yeah. And there's all sorts of stuff on there, like Chris Rock getting, like Will Smith slapping Chris Rock. It's is one of them like Jar Jar Binks in Star Wars is one of them there's lots of like um, uh, Fox Studios uh, gave away uh, Home Alone for five million dollars and ended up making five hundred million dollars stories like that but some of the more interesting ones and I love these are the actors that turned down the really big roles.
1: What's great about a story like this is that you can debate this about. Sure, the role maybe went on to be in a huge movie, but would the movie have been huge if this other actor had been in it? Right. Yeah. So
3: one of the one of the top ten stories was that Matt Damon turned down Avatar, a billion dollar decision. He said because they offered him profit share, ten percent. Yeah, ten percent of the total take. So that would have been absolutely huge. He he wanted to do it cause James Cameron, but he was working on one of the Jason Bourne movies and that he was like, I'm, I'm committed to this Jason Bourne thing. I know it's going to be a big franchise. And you know, that role went to um, um, Sam Worthington. Thank you, Sam. Wor- I was gonna, yeah. Thank you. I
1: like Sam Worthington. He has had a fascinating career because now he's, everybody thought he was going to be the next big thing after right. Avatar, but he had some real ups and downs and he had some addiction issues with alcohol. And now you can find him in some quiet, good
3: character yeah. things uh,
1: and uh, he keeps popping up in things where I go, oh my god that's Sam where did he's great uh, yeah. so he's had a very interesting
3: career totally and he's in the Avatar sequel as well and the character is going to continue with him um, this one's always interesting too Will Smith that he turned down the matrix of which went to Keanu Reeves
1: and I think it still might have been good with Will Smith in
3: it I think really? he might I think he could have pulled that oh, off I no do. Simmy, no way that's like that's Keanu that role put Keanu on the uh, map I mean I, he was I on, didn't mean to get you all worked up Scott <laughs> but it's I just Will <laughs> Smith. He's like, he's so corny. Yeah. Like you don't he, know. He's
1: also a good actor. Like I'm not defending Will Smith because of obviously you know there are things that happen later. But there have been some roles where you're like Will Smith is a good actor. I mean I'm not saying he couldn't have pulled it off. He
3: could have. Yeah, I don't know. I just I I think those movies are great. And Keanu is like the perfect choice. They oh, also yeah, sure. Apparently that role was also offered to Brad Pitt and he turned it down it uh, uh, Neo in the Matrix, was offered to Brad Pitt. Yeah. yeah um, other things. John Travolta turned down Forrest Gump. Can't see anyone other than Tom Hanks being that role, Forrest Gump. I'm going to say something controversial is that I he might have been able to pull that off. No. Oh, man. Sumi, I'm shocked. You're
1: not thinking about John Travolta in 1994, which is when Forrest Gump was made. He had a huge streak of movies like Phenomenon and Michael... And, you know, Pulp Fiction, there was like a a whole bunch of great movies that John Travolta was making at that time where he it might not have been the huge thing, but he might have been able to pull up.
3: I think maybe I don't know. I like this one, though, that a lot of people have talked about this one. Tom Selleck was offered Indiana Jones.
1: Yeah, and he was very bitter about losing that. Like They yeah. were good to go. He, that
3: role was his, and CBS would not release him from Magnum P.I. Right. to go and make it. And I love Tom Selleck. I love Harrison Ford, but I think Tom Selleck is like man's man type of thing. And would I, don't have been great been, I don't think it would have been. I don't think so. I don't think so. See, interesting, it's interesting how divided we are on this. I like this one, too, because superheroes. Uh, Viggo Mortensen from um, Lord of the Rings was offered Wolverine. I and can turned it down. See, I can't see anyone other than Hugh Jackman being Wolverine. I love Hugh Jackman, but I I can see Vigo pulling that off. Uh,
1: there's things where I think, okay, this was meant to be. Like you've got George Clooney who turned down The Notebook. Yeah,
3: yeah, yeah. And Clooney Good. is thank like,
1: thank you, thank you for turning that down.
3: Really? Yes. Because you think that that you you think that that was Ryan Gosling's role, no matter what. Yeah, I do. You know, what's interesting is they also say that one of the reasons that they went after Ryan Gosling was that he wasn't at the time seen as a heartthrob, you know, and and of course now he's like known as being one of the sexiest men in the world. But at the time when they cast him, it was like, well, it's kind of um um people won't look at it and be like, oh my gosh, it's like this most handsome man ever in the role, but now we see it that way. Right, and you've also got one, like a a Titanic one. Yeah, Claire Danes, uh, she passed on the role of Rose in Titanic, but apparently they were really interested in her because of the chemistry that she had in Romeo and Juliet with Leonardo DiCaprio.
1: So it would have been like reuniting her with Leonardo DiCaprio. Yeah,
3: yeah, yeah, of course we know that role Uh. went to uh, Kate Winslet in the end. Apparently Matthew McConaughey also was interested in the role of Jack, you know, but of course it ended up going to Leo. Yeah, there's so many of these, hey? Woody Harrelson turned down Jerry Maguire, iconic Tom Cruise role. Oh, I have to think about that for a second. That might have worked. Yeah. I think Woody Harrelson's a great actor and under the right circumstances with the right writers, you know? These are fun though, hey? I, these are fun because
1: you can think of all the what... I love what ifs. I love, I love playing that game, but this is um, these are,
3: some of these are pretty cool. Thank you for that. Movie's coming back, Simmy. I hope enough.
1: so. I hope so. That is our Scott Chats if you want to weigh in, Simi, at cknw.com.
0: This is Mornings with Simmy
1: have a little chat with von palmer for the vancouver sun this morning because there is a lot for us to catch up on good morning von
4: and good morning simmy
1: okay so oh that didn't sound very good everything okay this morning i'm fine okay good
4: i'm just sitting here having a good time you know having my coffee
1: good uh let's talk about this washington post story because when i read this night before last my first thought when i read it was huh This is a lot of information that local media has not been able to obtain about the killing of somebody right here in our community.
4: Yes, it is incredible that you have to go to the Washington Post to get a good description of what the security camera at the temple in Surrey shows about the killing at the temple in Surrey. Uh, Two vehicles, six people involved. It's vivid, powerful stuff. And you're right, Simi. Our police in this country have clearly had that video for some time. They've not shared it with our news media. Uh, yeah, Washington Post managed to get a look at it. Not 100% clear how they did it, but Simi, they have a reporter in Surrey. The reporter's named in the story, and they also clearly have very good access to the U.S. authorities on this. So I I am sorry to tell the listener, if the listener didn't already know this, Of all the negative things you could say about the Americans these days, their policing and security services are more open than ours in sharing information with the news media, and that's been a long-standing thing. Most reporters in British Columbia or in Canada have had the experience before. You get nothing from the Canadian authorities. If the trail leads across the border, you call the local American sheriff and he tells you everything you need to know.
1: Yeah, it's disappointing. When this is an issue of public safety, this was a a very brazen murder in a public place uh, that was right there in the middle of the community. And it it is disappointing, as you say, that apparently uh, a news organization like The Washington Post can get more information on it than we can.
4: Yeah, and again, we don't know exactly how they got it. Uh, news organizations are not in the habit of telling people when they get something yeah, exactly. secretive, but they got it, and nobody's disputing their account of what was on that video. The, You know, the Premier of British Columbia uh, has also commented on this semi on, on Friday at the UBCM. Uh, David Eby said he hadn't really been given any kind of briefing on what Canada knows about this clear issue of public safety in British Columbia, said he got a one hour long heads up that the prime minister was going to level charges in the against India in the House of Commons. But Eby said, you know, he got a briefing um, and all he was told was the kind of thing. He said, look, I can read the newspapers. I already knew that. So he got asked about this again yesterday uh, because he did a media availability from his meetings in Ottawa at noon. And he said, "Not. He still hasn't been told anything more." He said, "As the premier of British Columbia, he needs to make sure that everything is being done to protect the safety of British Columbians, and he's not been told enough to know in this case." So, uh, Eb, the only thing Eb said yesterday that was different than what he'd said on Friday was he said, "It appears that it would need a change in the legislation governing CSIS, The Security and intelligence services to allow CSIS to brief premiers where it is relevant as well as the prime minister. I and mean, the irony here, Sim, is that the federal leader of EB's political party, Jagmeet Singh, who's a member for a BC writing, he's had the security briefing. He shares power with the prime minister. He should get it. And the other thing the premier said yesterday was look, David, he's not talking about getting a hold of information that would compromise police investigations. He's not talking that he's going to call a press conference and start blabbing everything. He's just saying, my government, BC government is in charge of making sure British Columbians are secure, and he needs to be better briefed in order to know what he needs to know to do that.
1: They're in charge of policing in this province. Police would know this information, wouldn't they?
4: Yeah, yeah. One hopes so. But, you know, You know, I see there's one... One issue with the Washington Post story that's been disputed now by policing services here, um, the the statement that I saw yesterday was uh, RCMP saying, the story's wrong in one respect. The story suggested there was a big holdup in responding to the killing because of a jurisdictional squabble between the RCMP and Surrey policing services. Both services say that's not true. But again, if you read that statement, They say they got a bunch of questions from the Washington Post and they weren't able to get a response together in time to be in the story. Sammy, again, I have to say that is more typical of Canadian police. Uh, We'll get back to you on it. They don't by deadline. And then they blame the news media for getting the story wrong. So uh, it's—I saw that detail as well. Unfortunate,
1: it is unfortunate. I saw that detail as well, and I wondered about it because I thought, well, wait a minute—it would have been I hit anyway. There was no No, jurisdictional issue. It would have been I hit. So I did question that detail as well. But so that whole story, I just thought, well, this is more information that a lot of media here have not been able to pry out of the police, and that is very frustrating.
4: Yeah, it's very frustrating because clearly this is a huge, huge issue for British Columbians in general. And and obviously we are one of the main places in the world where sick people have uh, emigrated and established communities and families. This is a central issue for them. And there are many people here who trace their heritage back to India, to other communities in India as well. So on this one, uh, certainly the premier of British Columbia should have had a, bl- a better briefing. Yes. And frankly, I don't think our news media in British Columbia should be having to say, dial up the Washington Post to find out what happened there, because the police here won't tell us anything.
1: We are chatting with Vaughn Palmer for the Vancouver Sun. Now, Vaughn, before we get to the housing discussion, I just very quickly wanted to touch on that poll that came out yesterday about provincial politics in B.C. and get your thoughts on that.
4: Well, I would love to sit in a BC United caucus meeting and hear what they're saying to each other about this because we've heard all the excuses. Opposition leader Kevin Falcon says the news media in the province just doesn't understand that, you know, they changed their name only 5 uh, months ago and of course people uh, still haven't clued in on all that, but but relax, you know, relax. We're, by the time the next election rolls around, everybody's going to know what BC United is, and everybody's going to know what Kevin Falcon stands for. So, you know, that's what he's saying publicly. I have to think, Simi, behind the scenes that at least some members of BC United are in a panic. And some of them are probably thinking, maybe we should change leaders. Uh, before the next election, and maybe we should uh, go back to the old name. Oh boy, election. that would—I mean, that's that's a panic-inducing opinion. Well, you can say all kinds of things about it. The, you know, the provincial government is uh, cruising along and uh, making big announcements. They got lots of money to announce things. You can say it's a spillover effect for the Conservatives and Pierre Paulyev. Those are all factors, sure, but. Uh, the election by this time next year, Sammy, we'll be in the middle of a provincial election campaign. That is assuming David Eby doesn't take the opportunity for a spring election, which must be awfully tempting. So, um, yeah, I think it's in, in, if it hasn't induced an internal crisis in BC United, they're not paying attention. That's me. I mean,
1: I guess the name change was one thing, but what they didn't see was the potential resurgence of the BC conservatives that, that they didn't see coming.
4: That's true, although, you know, if you, if you back up and say, well, what if they hadn't changed their name? What if they were going around right. with the BC they Liberal They might still
1: name? have these problems.
4: They may well still have had some BC United members seizing the opportunity, being opportunists, um, to call themselves the BC Conservatives and have a go at it. But again, you've got to put a piece of blame on Kevin Falcon for this. He's the one who kicked... John Rustad out of the BC United caucus. It was still the BC liberal caucus last summer. Um, You know, he did it. And if he hadn't done that, um, if he had not, if he had figured out a way to keep Rustad in the tent, um, we might not be in the current political situation. The same with uh, Benman, the member for Abbotsford South. If Falcon had turned his attention to the challenge there, he might have been able to head this off. So even though I think we are clearly in a time of change in political labeling in the country, just ask the federal liberals and the federal conservatives, uh, you can't say Kevin Falcon didn't have some responsibility as a leader in this. The only real job he inherited was keep the coalition together so you're the main vehicle to defeat the NDP in the next election. And he's so far not only really has he failed to do that, but, I mean, some of the changes are entirely his fault.
1: All right. Well, there's more to come on that, but we also want to talk on uh, about housing this morning because yeah. there was that big housing press conference about giving these certain communities a target that they must hit.
4: Yes, well, we've been calling this the naughty list for a while, and the government's been talking a pretty tough line. David Eby has been talking a tough line about You know, the provincial government is going to set targets for housing, for local government to approve more housing because we need more housing. And if they don't do it, the provincial government has given itself the legislative power to step in and overrule local government. So when all that was announced, Simi, we were, you know, expecting a bit of a clash. But uh, I uh, listened carefully to the press conference yesterday, and I was struck by how, Simi, this whole thing, is turning into a pillow fight between the provincial government and local governments. First of all, Housing Minister uh, Ravi Kailan uh, has a press conference and he's joined on the platform saying this is a really good idea by the mayor of one of the naughty municipalities, uh, Murdoch, the mayor of uh, Saanich. Uh, he's there and, and before the EBS or uh, Kailan has finished speaking, we get a press release from Ken Sim in Vancouver saying, this is great. Uh, we're going to do this. We may even exceed these topics. And I'm going, are these people really naughty? Yeah. <laughs> are they not part of the solution? <laughs> so I think local governments come around and said, hey, the provincial government is going to do this. Uh, let's go along with it rather than fighting with them.
1: It sure sounds like it. Okay. And, and some like, targets didn't seem to be outrageous either. Like, was there a bit of a compromise here by saying we're not going to overreach?
4: Yeah, I mean, most of the municipalities, first of all, they've been given five years. So, like, that's forever. That's more than an election away. Uh, So they've given five years. Second of all, the provinces promised help on infrastructure. Third of all, the targets by the provincial government's own admission are only 75% of what's actually needed. So they've scaled it down. Right, And the two municipalities that are the biggest outliers on this, Now, most of the municipalities' target is about what they've been able to build and develop in the last five years. There's a couple of outliers, and one of them is Oak Bay, and the other one's West Van. Again, I see the mayors in those communities saying, well, this is going to be a bit of a challenge, but we think it's doable, providing. We get a bit of help from the provincial government, and the province is saying, hey, we put up a lot of money, and we'll put up more to help you with infrastructure. So... I think what you've got is uh, what was originally looked like a clash and a showdown is now looking like what's probably best. Provincial government and the municipalities are going to work together to try to hit these targets.
1: All right. Well, we hope. Anyway, we'll see what happens. Vaughn, thank you.
4: Bye-bye, Simi.
0: This is Mornings with Simi. This house is above any of us. Therefore,
4: I must step down as your speaker. I reiterate my profound regret for my error in recognizing an individual in the House. That public recognition has caused pain to individuals and communities, including the Jewish community in Canada and around the world, in addition to survivors of Nazi atrocities in Poland.
1: That is the soon-to-be former Speaker of the House of Commons, Anthony Roda, tendering his resignation yesterday. Day late, if you ask me, but hey, it is done. This resignation follows his invitation to one of his constituents, Jaroslav Hanka, to come to Ottawa and be honoured by the House. And as we now know, it turns out, Hanka had volunteered to serve in a Nazi unit during World War II. Like what a distressing week it has been. Canada grappling with embarrassment on the world stage because of this, the hurt that this has caused to communities makes us all realize as well how much we need to learn about our shared history, doesn't it? Well, Daniel Panaton is the Director of Allyship and Community Engagement at the Friends of Simon Wiesenthal Centre and joins us now to talk about this. Daniel, thank you so much for being here.
5: Good morning. Thanks for having me. What was
1: the reaction at the center like to seeing this standing ovation happening in the House of Commons?
5: Well, we were incredibly disappointed and frustrated by seeing this happen, uh, even more so when you consider that it happened just before Yom Kippur, which is the most sacred day on the Jewish calendar.
1: And so are you, look, were you satisfied with the, like, with the reaction to this? In fact, when people were saying, wait a minute, this should never have happened.
5: so yes it should have never have happened in the first place and we're glad to have seen that uh, speaker Rhoda has done the right thing and stepped down over this mistake we do think it was a mistake but stepping down was really the only uh, thing that could have been done here uh what we're looking at or what we're hoping for now is positive outcomes what do you you
1: mean by that like what are positive outcomes what could come of this
5: So, um, one, we would like to see a uh, parliamentary procedure, uh, the Parliamentary Procedure and Health Affairs Committee to hold public hearings investigating how this possibly could have happened. And the second is that this speaks to a troubling lack of historical literacy among our elected officials. And hopefully this may provide various provinces the um, reason to start mandating Holocaust education at earlier ages.
1: Well, this is what I'm wondering, Daniel. Is it, is it just our elected officials or is it Canadians in general could all serve to learn some more about this?
5: I would say that Canadians in general, we could all stand to learn more about World War II and the Holocaust and the world that it built.
1: Well, while we have you here, then let's start right now. Tell me about the Friends of Simon Wiesenthal Centre. What what's the work that you do there?
5: So we're a Jewish human rights nonprofit that uh, works in advocacy and education. So through programs like our Tour for Humanity bus, which is a bus that tours all around the country, bringing Holocaust education to locations that wouldn't normally get it, uh, we br- we provide high-quality uh, Holocaust education and uh, consulting to different education groups. In addition to that, we have our advocacy wing, who uh, we respond to incidents like uh, the incident in the House of Commons on Friday um, and things like that.
1: It's surprising that there are places that we don't teach Holocaust education, I'm just surprised by that, right? Because, like, I grew up hearing about it, but then I grew up in the 80s. Have we become lax in this, Daniel?
5: Um, It really, when it it comes down to curriculums and teachers, so there are absolutely uh, students who are receiving thorough, high-quality education in this subject. But we are finding, unfortunately, um, awareness about core facts, like the numbers of Jews killed in the Holocaust, is surprisingly low. So that tells us that, unfortunately, although there are examples of really great education happening, it's pretty patchwork across the country.
1: It also occurs to me that there are people who don't know who Simon Wiesenthal was. Maybe you would like to tell them about
5: that. Absolutely. Uh, so Simon Wiesenthal was a Holocaust survivor who became a Nazi hunter after the war. Uh, he was responsible for locating over a thousand Nazi war criminals during his career. And uh, he was, uh, actually did engage a bit with Canada, but he was very frustrated in the 1980s and actually never returned to Canada after the failures of the Duchenne Commission into uh, investigation into war criminals in Canada.
1: Yeah, let's talk a bit about that because that's part of Canadian history that we need to know about. Is it? People ask, how did someone like Yaroslav Hanka even come to Canada if there was somebody who was known to have fought with the Nazis? But it turns out there were quite a few people like that who came to Canada, weren't there?
5: There were. Um, we often tend to assume that post-war justice in World War II was a lot more sweeping and staggering than it actually was. Uh, The Nuremberg trials uh, were nowhere near as comprehensive as people often assume. So we know that in Canada, from the specific SS unit that um, Hunka was a member of, the 14th uh, Grenadiers, there were about 2,000 individuals in Canada who were tied to that unit.
1: Right. And so in the 1980s, there was a commission to investigate how this happened, how Canada had allowed people like that to come to this country.
5: Yes. And unfortunately um, that commission overlooked the fact that the Nuremberg trials described all of the Waffen-SS as a criminal organization. And they singled out the 14th the unit in question as um, not being tied to any discernible crimes against humanity or war crimes. Um, subsequent research, especially due to the opening of Soviet archives has revealed that they indeed were involved with several massacres um, uh, so that's an example of where uh, they were absolved by a Canadian commission um, incorrectly.
1: Do you think Canadians, do you think we are naive about this?
5: Um, I think many countries in the uh, in the West are quite naive about the way that we um, face down justice in the end of World War II. So I can also highlight in the United States, there was something called Operation Paperclip, which brought over a lot of Nazi uh, rocket scientists to the United States. So we're not the only country that kind of brought over former Nazis and then integrated them into our country. Um, But we do have a responsibility to face down that history.
1: We certainly do. And we're doing that uh, this week. It sounds like, Daniel, thank you for your time.
5: Absolutely. Thank you for having me.
1: We appreciate that. Daniel Paniton is the Director of Allyship and Community Engagement at the Friends of Simon Wiesenthal Center. Listen, if that name is new to you, Simon Wiesenthal, please look it up. Do some reading. Fascinating history. The work that Simon Wiesenthal did was amazing and clearly from the events that happened here in our country over the last few days, we could all stand to brush up on our history. And the commission that um, Daniel just mentioned there, the Duchesne Commission happened in the mid-1980s or so. I think it was like 1985. It was established uh, asking the question of how did Canada allow war criminals to come to this country? That's also also worth checking
0: out too. This is Mornings with Simmy.
6: If there are two things that I love in this world, those things are baked goods and punk rock. So you can imagine how excited I was when I learned about punk rock pastries. Opened in 2019 on Hastings Street near Hold'em in Burnaby, Punk Rock Pastries combines precisely those two things. The confections are… unusual, eclectic, perhaps sometimes controversial, but we'll get there. Owner of Punk Rock Pastries, Holly Fraser, says that setting up shop in Burnaby was only natural in the grand tradition of West Coast punk rock.
7: Honestly, I know a lot of uh, punk bands that actually started out in Burnaby. It was one of the like kind of little hot spots for punk bands back in the day. But honestly, it all comes down to my husband. He was driving past this spot going to work one day and he's like, "Hey, this place is open." you know, you should really set up shop here. Like, it's a great location. Um, you know, it's in the middle of nowhere, but it's, like, kind of building up, like, the community around it. Like, we're just getting, like, you know, more towers built and more, you know, people moving into the area. Um, and he was like, yeah, this would be a great starting out location. So we kind of just, yeah, came to here, and it suited us well. Like, we did our research on the families around the area, you know, um, who lives in the area, and it, people seem to love it. The community loves the store, and, You know, they helped us out a lot through COVID and stuff. So it's really amazing. It's a great community and we love it here. As
6: much as the community loves the bakery, there was an incident where one community member did not.
7: We don't make ordinary stuff. We go a little bit crazy here and we made erotic cookies. Now, they're not like, they don't look like, you know, body parts. But, you know, if like a kid was looking at it, he'd look at it and go, oh. It's a dinosaur, but it's just got a weird head (laughs) kind of thing. We did have a parent apparently come in and they were a little bit shocked and complained to the city. The city did come in and they talked to me and they said, you're not breaking any bylaws. You know, we just came to warn you and maybe you should put it up on your... Instagram or you should put it up on your own website and I'm like, it's up on Instagram, it's up on the website it's up on Facebook. So I did another post and we kind of went viral because I couldn't stop laughing.
6: Let's listen to some of Holly's Instagram advisory.
7: Putting a disclaimer out um, courtesy of the city of Burnaby, they'd asked me to do this. Please if you do decide to come to Punk Rock Pastries, please know we do have adult themed things in store. We are not a child friendly store. Yeah I'm sorry I cannot contain my laughter but <laughs> this is pretty funny. It is pretty funny, right? Because at the end
6: of the day, it's just a cookie.
7: It's just a funny looking cookie. <laughs> so we thought it was pretty cool. Got a phone call from my dad saying, you're on the news in Australia. And I'm like, what? We made it to Australia, Germany, the UK. Um, it was really weird. Um, cool, but really weird.
6: <laughs> cool and Weird is extremely on brand for this unique
7: little spot.
6: You know what else is on brand for punk rock pastries? Kindness. And giving back to the community.
7: We believe here that it's fun to be kind, and I think a lot of people don't see that. We do a lot of work for the community and we do a lot of donations from the shop ourselves. We work with Canuck's House um, and we've done a whole bunch of different stuff for around the community. And I think people just come in and they judge a book by its cover straight away. They're like, okay, punk rock pastries, oh, this is going to be bad, you know, and they come in and they, they see the, the cookies and they get, you know, they get blindsided, so they don't see what we do and what we are about, and punk is living your life a way you want to live it, you know, not being afraid to be yourself, and I think that's, you know, that's why I opened the shop, I wanted to do things my way, and I wanted to do Treats and pastries that are completely different and totally out of the box.
6: And if you want to learn how to make your own punk rock pastries, Holly has got you covered. I
7: absolutely love teaching. Before COVID, we were doing a few kids' classes in the bakery, and they loved it. It was so much fun. I had so much fun being able to teach, and that's what we really wanted to do. And it's another way that we can give back. And you know, show kids that, you know, you can do this as well. So yeah, we opened up classes and the first four classes we posted sold out within three days. And then uh, the next slot we posted sold out and then the next slot. And then we took a break for summer and now we just have our Halloween ones up. And I think there's only a few spots left.
6: I'm not surprised with some of the things you see in the bakery, like a cake with a sculpted bloody human heart on the top. You want to learn how the heck they did that. All told, PRP is a hidden, edgy, funny, and of course, very punk rock jewel just east of the heights. So go on in, get yourself some unicorn poop or a brain filled with raspberry mousse or a dinosaur cookie with an uh, (coughs) oddly shaped head. For Where We Live, I'm Jerry Nair Judson.
0: is mornings with Simi.
5: People find a lot of excuses of why they don't want housing in their community. What we need communities to do is to work together and get to how we can get to yes and I'm committed to working with all these communities to reach their targets.
1: That is Housing Minister Ravi Kailan speaking with our guest, Joe Hall, yesterday afternoon, talking about the announcement from the provincial government that they are setting housing targets for 10 particular municipalities, and they are aiming for something like 60,000-plus new housing units in the next five years. And these are the municipalities that, I mean, have been kind of dubbed being on the naughty list, as in they weren't building enough housing out there. So over the last few months, the provincial government has been consulting with them, trying to figure out, listen, what's the right number? How do you make this happen? What needs to, to be done to do this? Hence the announcement yesterday. So these 10 municipalities have to meet the housing targets or face potential provincial intervention to enforce higher density. Now, these targets also included things like specific unit sizes, like should they be how many one bedrooms, how many two bedrooms, how many three bedrooms, uh, how many rental units, how many below market rentals, and how many supportive housing units. It's a really interesting process too. So let's take one of the communities on that list, for instance, like Saanich. Now, Saanich says, yes, they have to build some more housing. The target for Saanich, by the way, set by the province, is 4,610 or so new homes over the next five years. Can it be done? And how do communities like Saanich feel about being handed these targets? Well, joining us now is Dean Murdoch, the mayor of Saanich, to talk more about this. Thank you so much for joining us.
8: Good morning, Simi. Thanks for having me.
1: So can Santa do it? Can you build 4,610 new homes over the next five years?
8: well we 're certainly up for the challenge uh we're uh, we 're very enthusiastic about the opportunity to uh, to work together with the province to make this happen we're uh, we 're very committed to make building more homes for people in our community more quickly um, without a doubt uh, this is going to stretch us this will be uh, a challenge to effectively triple our output uh, from what we 're currently doing. Uh, but I think we're we're well positioned to do that. We have uh, we've been working on streamlining our processes and creating uh, greater efficiencies internally, as well as um, updating our official community plan and, and corridor plans to ensure that uh, it's uh, an easy process to follow, where it's uh, very clear the type of housing we want to build and where.
1: So, Mayor Murdoch. Just so I understand this, are you saying that by building almost five thousand homes over the next five years, that would triple what you were normally expected to build?
8: That's right. So this is pushing us well beyond where we're, our current output, and uh, it will be, it will mean uh, moving through effectively three times uh, what we have currently been doing.
1: But that now, I guess what I'm that doesn't sound like you were going to build very much prior to this target being set.
8: Certainly, I think uh, we've been generously described as underperforming and uh, we we recognize that that's been the case in Saanich for for quite some time. And so there have been processes underway to improve that process uh, or our internal processes and to make it uh, much uh, clearer about what type of housing can be built where and and moving forward with things like pre-zoning that would Set the table for a a process that's conducive to getting housing built more quickly.
1: Okay, and so what was the reason for the underperforming then? What was the problem with the process?
8: Oh, I think that uh, generally Saanich has had a tradition of uh, a much slower um, infill development cycle, and uh, that has been historically the case. And it's meant that over the course of recent years, as we've looked to increase uh, how quickly and how many homes can be built. Uh, that that process has uh, had to be refined, and we continue to uh, build capacity internally to make sure that uh, we have the ability to respond to more applications as they make their way through the process.
1: And what about the public role in all of this, right? Like, is it because the public was opposed to seeing more built there? And, and how will how will the community of Saanich feel about this?
8: So we uh, we certainly hear from people regularly that uh, they're concerned about housing. One of the comments I hear most often from people who are older adults whose children have moved from their homes is that they're concerned that their kids are not going to have a place to live. They don't want to see them having to move away from the community. They want their kids to be over for Sunday dinner with the grandkids. And uh, they're not able to find family-suitable places to put down roots in our community. So the push is on to ensure that we've got zoning in place that's conducive to creating that type of housing, uh, including what we're calling neighbourhood homes, which other communities might describe as missing middle, where we can have duplexes, triplexes, multiplexes and townhouses built in neighbourhoods. Uh, that's the type of housing that can still be within reach for families. And that's certainly what uh, we're hearing is uh, is a major gap in our housing supply.
1: So what, what changed Saanich's mind then from going from building what sounds like very little housing to now saying, yeah, we can do this?
8: Well, I don't think it's so much a, a change in mindset. I think it's responding to the reality of, uh, of what we're up against for housing demand uh, and affordability in our community. Uh, this is certainly been a major priority. Uh, well, it's the number one thing I heard about throughout the election last year, and it's certainly been the topic of discussion uh, for a number of years before that. So that's contributed to the, um, the need to, to move things forward much more quickly. And uh, certainly this is now something where we've got uh, the full attention of uh, the resources within the district. Uh, we've got uh, support from the province to move forward. And, and I think with that continued support, we're going to be successful.
1: All right, so 4,610 over the next five years. Can you meet that or can you exceed that?
8: Uh, I'm confident that, uh, that we're going to meet it. Uh, it's going to be a, a stretch for us uh, as we, we find our, our feet in this new process. So it's going to take time. But uh, the targets uh, uh, anticipate that kind of stepped approach so that we will build up capacity over the five years Um, it's going to take a lot of work and we're going to need support from the province in order to do it. Uh, But I'm confident that we can get there.
1: Interesting time. I look forward to seeing what happens. Thank you so much for your time on that. Thank you. That's Dean Murdoch, the mayor of Saanich, being on the list there that the provincial government announced yesterday, one of the 10 municipalities that received a housing target on the so-called naughty list. And the housing target for Saanich was to build in the next five years 4,610 new homes. And we just heard the mayor of Saanich tell us that is triple what they would have produced without this urging. So that means that unless the province pushed them, they were only going to build maybe a thousand new homes over the next five years. We're talking about a community of 120,000 people, a thousand new homes over the next five years was what their old target was before the province pushed them. That seems incredibly low, doesn't it? It also tells you why we have been stuck in this situation. This is going to be really fascinating uh, to watch this unfold. If you want to weigh in, Simi at CKNW.com.
0: This is Mornings with Simi can't hear scott
3: hello there he is okay did you forget to push the button scott well so i was doing some editing and i turned the sound off when i was editing to make sure that the sound didn't come through and then i forgot to turn it back on so that's a yes yeah sorry (laughs) (laughs) okay so my question to you is
1: would you prefer to work from home
3: yeah i think i would like a hybrid work scenario i really like being in the office around people and having that sort of community and back and forth and stuff but i also enjoy having a couple days a week from home
1: Right. I prefer to work here because there's just too much going on at my house. It's too busy. I don't feel like people would allow me uh, the, there the is that. isolation to yes. work from home. Uh, but sometimes I do wish that some of the people who work here in the office would work from home.
3: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think I think we all kind of think that that's one of the luxuries of being yeah. here in the morning is the office is mostly empty and then all these yeah. people get here and we're like, yeah, I'm like, going
1: time to go. Yeah, out of uh, here. OK, but this is a, still a lot of people grapple with this.
3: Yeah, absolutely. The pandemic left us with this like totally different world than the one before it. And in many cases, we're still reconciling with some of those changes. For example, working from home for lots of people, it seems like a really great idea. But this idea of working from home, it quickly devolved into remote work, which is not necessarily from home, like maybe from a coffee shop or whatever. And with it, digital nomadism, like you can be basically anywhere. And I discovered that that brings with it a whole spectrum of pros and cons. Have a listen. Digital nomadism, this is a word that's been kind of popular lately, has to do with the idea of people taking remote work to the next level. I mean, if you're remote, that kind of means that you can work from anywhere, right? Here to explain a little more is Rachel Woldoff. She's a professor of urban sociology at the University of West Virginia, and she's written a book called Digital Nomads in Search of Freedom, Community, and Meaningful Work in the New Economy.
9: Digital nomads are people who are location independent, meaning they can work. And this occurred, obviously, even before COVID. There were people who could work uh, without going to a bricks and mortar office. It could be that you're an entrepreneur and you can work remotely. Let's say you have an online business or something like that. It could be someone who works for a company. So they're an employee at a company that's letting them work remote. And then people who are kind of um, freelancing. So they have their contract workers. And I would say the the employee category where you're you're employed with a company and they're letting you work remotely um, and location independent, so they don't care if you're at home, that's a very large growing category (laughs) as employees have made up their minds that they really don't want to be in the office five days a week anymore.
3: And here now is one of these digital nomads. Meet Rachel Reimer. Her and her husband lived in a van for three years, traveling around and just working on the internet.
10: My husband and I have been kind of on a mission to find a, a way of life that works for us. And we're willing to try basically everything because um, we were working like brick and mortar jobs in Vancouver before. Felt like even though we were working these jobs and everything looked good on paper, it was still we were still feeling like we were drowning, like trying to pay for rent and all of that. And it was very hard to save any money or do anything that we actually wanted to do. The low cost of living was really huge for us in being able to like, make it on our journey
3: uh, to where we are now. So the appeal is obviously there, right? You get to live at the beach, work whatever hours you want, and save a ton of money while you're doing it. But there has to be a downside to all of this, right? Okay, let's go back to Rachel, the professor, to tell us about some of the problems that are growing around digital nomadism.
9: So some of the big things that have come up are, you know, definitely in sociology, is the neocolonialism aspect of it, Mm, or gentrification, however you want to view it, you have a white collar knowledge worker class where they're making Western or, you know, you know, dollars from, from um, industrialized countries. And then they're spending them down in less developed countries and where the currency will take them further. Many people view this as very exploitative. How is that going to affect the housing crisis, the housing market where I am, the culture, the traffic, the environment, the food, you know, everything. So there are significant downsides, And then some people just on principle find the whole thing, you know, somewhat repulsive.
3: But it's not like a lot of these people that are practicing digital nomadism aren't aware of this. It makes sense that if you're going to spend a certain amount of time in a given country or culture, you're going to want to endear yourself to that culture and make good practice and not, you know, take advantage of situations like this. Back again to Rachel in the van.
10: I have to be really conscious about certain language that we use when we talk about being a digital nomad. Saying things like, okay, let's move, Let's all move to Mexico City because it's so cheap here. Let's move to Colombia because it's so cheap here. And, like, my money can go so far. We can live like kings. Like, that's problematic, and I think that's become really common in the digital nomad space and why a lot of people are frowning a little bit towards digital nomads, especially locals who are living in these places if you're making good American money and then you're going to a place where they're not even making a fraction of your income and then you're driving up rent prices and all of that, that's absolutely a problem. And I think that's something that hopefully over time that there's certain like laws or rules or regulations that countries will set in place to protect themselves and their own people.
3: Okay, so that's a really nice idea, and I think we can all agree that it would be wonderful if countries do do these things to protect their cultures and their people. But we're ahead of ourselves here. The problem is that this remote culture has spread so fast that a lot of these countries and governments and foreign places haven't been able to keep up with legislation to protect themselves from things like this. And the problem is that this remote work thing, it's not going away
9: in general i think the ability to avoid your commute and work from home with more you know at least a couple days a week at hybrid structure is at the very minimum what the future holds but i actually think that in general the future for going to the office five days a week is coming to a close for many professions remote
10: work like as it is now and so many people being able to build their businesses online and everything like has opened a whole new kind of industry and and uh yeah i think digital nomadism might be kind of a long-term thing
3: so there you have it it's here to stay remote work and digital nomadism along with it But along with that also needs to come the understanding that this isn't a slam dunk, home run, perfect situation for everyone, especially the people who don't have the option to do this and are affected by all of these people moving into their spaces, driving up costs and taking advantage of, in some cases, very limited resources. Like so many things in life, it looks like how this digital nomadism thing is going to turn out is going to be up to us and what we choose to do with it. So... Make good choices. I'm Scott Shantz. Hmm. Make good choices. Scott, are we always good at that? Well, not always, but I think if we keep reminding ourselves to be that it's hopefully a step in the right direction, I (laughs) guess. There's that eternal (laughs) optimist. (laughs) You know, knowledge is the first step. Knowledge of the problem is the first step. I think we're all still
1: working it out. Like we forget how we want to put it all behind us, but we forget how new this thing is. And
3: it takes time to develop these kinds of systems, right? Totally. Like we discover it's like, oh, I can work from the beach and and this is great. And then it takes a while to realize that like oh there's a downside too.
1: there is a downside to that too we're all still figuring that out scott thank you mm-hmm.
0: this is mornings with simi
1: it is time now for making sense of the markets with Lori pankowski Lori is a senior portfolio manager at canaccord genuity and joins us now good morning Lori.
11: good morning simi how are you i'm good thank you how are the markets doing Markets are slightly in the red now and um, September has not uh, been too kind to investors, uh, to put it that way. But markets are really down after central banks signaled higher rates for longer. And so investors are kind of digesting this for the time being, although we kind of already knew that. um, And the expectation is that for them, um, for the U.S. anyway, the Fed to increase rates just by a quarter point in November. And that's supposed to be the last rate hike. So, again, we're so much closer to the end of this tightening cycle than the beginning. So one thing to keep in mind is seasonality is fairly strong at this point in terms of the market. So. September is uh, historically the worst month um, in the year. And a lot of people actually think it's October, I think because of the crash of 87, because of the financial crisis, but but in reality it's September. And um, a lot of the time the market is strongest between November, even up until April. So we're using this correction is actually, uh, to actually uh, include some of those stocks that kind of ran away from us uh, during the earlier part of the year. So again, when you see these corrections, you know, don't panic, You know, don't freak out um, the market tends to have two 10% corrections a year. So again, this, this news that we had from the Fed uh, just a little while ago is, is not crash worthy or anything. To me, it's again, just digesting uh, with interest rates, what's going on. But again, with a pause later this fall, uh, alongside the seasonality being on our side, uh, to me, that could lead to a strong um, end of the year for markets. And historically, when you have uh, you know a bad September um, uh, usually you see q four. Uh, doing a lot better at uh, 12 past 13 times with some huge gains in October even. So again, it's, you, know, you want to be mindful of uh, not you know, panicking and running for the hills when you see these corrections and think differently. Think about what kind of opportunity is out there at this point. And when we look at the fear and greed index, which is something we follow, uh, we're seeing extreme fear right now. And what that means is uh, you want to be a contrarian. You want to be looking at the opportunities and the buys right now.
1: Okay. And what about this potentially upcoming U.S. government shutdown? Like, are you concerned about that?
11: I'm I'm not. I, I mean, we've gone through uh, many of these shutdowns before. Um, the deadline is uh, Friday, September 30th. And, you know, what we're looking at is is it, they're likely going to reach some sort of a deal. Of course, if they didn't, it would not be pretty. Um, it's happened before um, where it was, I think it was like 34 days that the government shut down at one point. Uh, but at this, uh, at this time, we think that they're going to reach a deal. Um, and again, they're one of the only G7 countries to have to raise this debt ceiling all the time. The, the one um, kind of s- side part of this could be that the U.S. debt credit rating <clears throat> could be downgraded again, which it already was, um, which could cause um, you know, higher rates for them when borrowing. Uh, but again, that was kind of a non-event in the markets. And so to put it in perspective, There have been 20 federal government shutdowns since 1976. Um, As I was referring to, the longest one was 34 days, and that was in 2018, 2019. The average has only lasted eight days. Um, You know, the S&P 500 has been higher during 10 of those shutdowns. So just something to keep in mind. Um, But the economists out there are expecting them to reach a deal, and and frankly, so do I. Uh, So we'll see what happens. But I I would say that sort of situation is more of a non-issue. But in a down market or a down month, it can create a little bit more uncertainty. So again, um, in my opinion, I think that this correction here in August, a bit more in September, uh, will likely lead to a a stronger fourth quarter. And we'll see that in earnings starting in mid-October as well.
1: Okay, so that is something to then keep an eye on for the month of October. I'm surprised that you said that September is generally worse than october
11: I know it, it's actually shocking to a lot of people, and it's not that seasonality is always right or anything but but you know in my experience of you know almost twenty four years uh, when I see corrections, they often are and so so when we are leading into September, you know we have a little bit more cash on the sidelines so that we can take advantage of that. And, you know, what I've seen a lot of the time is markets tend to move higher and kind of in October because people are then again uh, starting to buy equities for that stronger period in markets. Again, anything can come to the left field. Uh, So you have to be watching markets uh, all the time or have a financial team that does. Uh, but in reality, that is the situation. September is the weakest mm-hmm. month. Which, yes, you're right. You're not alone, Simi, and okay. most people think it's October. <laughs> okay, well, that's good. I'm not alone on that one.
1: Now, what, <laughs> given that it's so uncertain, it feels like right now, Lori, Like, what happens if somebody comes into some money, right? What if they inherit some money or they get a bit of a financial windfall? Like, how, What do you have to do? What do you have to be mindful of?
11: Yeah, you know, we get a lot of calls on this. Um, Well, probably because I've been on there for so long. Um, But also um, just because people are unsure of what to do and they may not have a financial advisor or one that they actually want to give more money to. (laughs) I've seen that quite a bit uh, when people are are calling us. But so some of those windfalls could be selling a business, um, you know, uh, receiving an inheritance, selling some real estate insurance proceeds or uh, even winning the lottery. It's... uh, (laughs) It's it's a big one right now, but you know, more often than not, I I would say selling a business and receiving inheritance are, are two of the biggest ones that we see. And selling a business, I mean, it's it's amazing how it works with a lot of business owners. Um, You know, a lot, of, a lot of people have not invested a lot of money into like their RSPs or into joint accounts as they're building their business because they have to put so much money invested back into their business. Um, we've seen that, uh, that come from a lot of franchise owners of McDonald's and Burger Kings. And, you know, I mean, I think a lot of these people may just have, you know, a small savings and all of a sudden they come into five or 10 million. And you know, I know that's not for every listener out there, but there are listeners that that are in this situation. And so we wanted to address that because it's important to find a financial team before you come into the lump sum if you can. So if you are a business owner, you know you're gonna be selling in the next year. To two three five years you want to build that relationship already with professionals uh, around you so they can help you because sometimes if you sell the business y- you know you didn't do what you thought you should or you didn't do what you should have done um and had you had a team of professionals around you they're going to help you with that and then inheritance is also a tough one right because people are going through a lot uh when they lose someone <clears throat> it could be a spouse it could be a parent um and at that point again they may have not uh you know had their own accounts their entire life and all of a sudden you know um they're in their 50s or 60s or 70s and they've come into a lot of money so um and the question i knew uh Simi uh, was um you know what should we be doing with that money well it really depends on that client and their family and, and so what are those goals right that's what we're asking them first
1: right and so you have to You have to really think about what you're going to do with it. Like maybe you haven't been much for charitable giving before, but this is something you've always wanted to do.
11: Well, exactly. Charitable giving can help with your tax situation, especially for a business owner selling a business, triggering a bunch of capital gains. Um, And charitable giving, you know, in my opinion, shouldn't be just, uh, you know, once a year. Um, I'm now a board member on Ronald McDonald House, for example. And so I'm, you know, giving time um, and, and money uh, throughout the year. And I think it's important to really become involved in, in whatever charity you choose uh, so that you can, um, you know, better the community. And of course, there's tax incentives when you, uh, you know, give donations. So you want to consider that when you come into a lump sum. You want to make sure that you have an estate plan and your will is in order because things have changed. Um, you know, and, and I think that's really important and, and also treating yourself. You want to have a little bit of fun as well. I think that's uh, something that you should be looking at.
1: I'm a big believer in that one. Like that's,
11: (laughs) (laughs) and I am too. I mean, life should be fun. And if you come into a lot of money, you just want to make sure that again, it's invested properly, right? If it isn't invested properly, it can be detrimental to you and future generations. I can't tell you that enough. And whether, you know, we would be investing partially in cashable GICs, as well as dividend paying stocks, bonds, that sort of thing. Again, if you don't understand investing, that's okay. Most of our clients don't. And, you know, that's why you have a good financial team around you. And then not just, a, you know, a financial advisor or portfolio manager is what you need, you still need an accountant. You need a financial planner, uh, as well as possibly a lawyer. Like, should you be setting up a trust and all those sorts of things? So those are conversations that I'm sitting in with clients, with their professionals. And if they didn't have a group of professionals to begin with, uh, well, then we're referring to uh, some of the best that I've seen. Because we get the opportunity to work with 150 accountants through our clients. We know the good ones to the not so good ones. And so again, when people come to us, with this kind of lump sum, and you know it's great news most of the time you know they're they're happy um but the the they have a lot of questions and we're we're there to answer those and and to help them because it's it can be overwhelming for a lot of people, and again that's you know whether they're selling a business, selling real estate inheritance insurance proceeds, whatever it may be. You just want a good financial team around you. All right. Well, Laura, you make
1: an excellent pitch. So when people, when somebody out there wins at $68 million tonight, they should call you.
11: Yeah, well, they definitely should. And uh, I'm sure lots of people are buying their tickets uh, anyway. And if you had $68 million, you, there's a lot of fun to be had, isn't there,
1: Sydney? <laughs> I'll, I'll let you know. I'll let you know when that happens. Lori. Well, good luck tonight. <laughs> you too. Thank you for that. Yes, thanks, me That is Lori Pinkowski. Lori is a Senior Portfolio Manager at Canaccord Genuity. And you know what? You can contact her team directly. Give them a call, 604-695-LORI, or you can visit their website at pinkowski.ca.